Uh, good morning, everybody. Oh, that's okay. Thank you. Your reward is in heaven. I appreciate it. Oh, that's hot. Good. Um, good morning. We're going to start a little bit early, uh, which is a first for me, um, but it was because the, the, the preacher was so adept and concise uh, this morning. And I finally have seen... Uh, yeah, that's right. And I finally have seen... Um, uh, the story of the squeaky wheels. Uh, you know, I, I've heard about the squeaky wheels, um, but now I was able to experience it. So I was, I was grateful for that. And they did a really great job uh, at the 9 o'clock, uh, the fifth graders um, in their pageant. Well, let us pray. Almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, grant unto thy people that they may love the thing which thou commandest, and desire that which thou dost promise, that so among the sundry and manifold changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, last week we talked about the difficulties uh, surrounding Christmas, uh, but really uh, about life in general. It just seems to be writ large during the Christmas season uh, when it comes to gifts and keeping things uh, even and this has been uh, a problem forever and ever and ever and it's a problem in all places uh, at, at all times original sin is evenly distributed uh, whether uh, you lived 2,000 years ago uh, remember uh, after the Last Supper Jesus washed his disciples feet and as he's washing Peter's feet what does Peter say oh no 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 right it really is better to give than to receive uh, because we don't like to be left empty-handed, right? Uh, it's nice uh, just to, to give a gift, and if you read my little adventurer article for the week, um, my family just thought that I was paranoid about this, um, and finally a medical research project came out of Harvard that proved me right, and, um, and so there you go. Medicine's on my side. But there is actually a, a physical, a biological response in your body when you give something uh, it makes you feel a lot better uh, than when you receive something. But also in receiving, we often think, uh, well, we deserve it. Uh, we've earned it. So um, it's not much of a gift. Well, uh, last week uh, we did a lot of bad news uh, with a few glimmers of hope emanating from the first Christmas 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And this week we're going to talk about the good news. Uh, we are going to talk about what Christmas does. What does Christmas do? Okay, that's our predicament. We find it very difficult uh, to receive gifts. Uh, we find it very difficult uh, even to give gifts because our children think that they deserve it. Um, we find it uh, impossible. And, you know, the problem uh, with Christmas is uh, not uh, necessarily materialism. Uh, mater that's just a symptom of the deeper problem, uh, which is us, uh, which is us. So when people ask, well, how do we get Christmas uh, the way that it ought to be? Uh, it never has been the way that it ought to be. And as long as uh, human beings are sinful until uh, Jesus comes again and ransoms us and makes all things new, um, this is just the way that Christmas is going to be. However, uh, there is a light uh, that breaks through, and that is Jesus Christ, uh, who is uh, the only person in the world that can actually give a gift uh, that we can't earn in any way. Uh, it's not deserved. 
Uh, it's not a wage, uh, but it is in fact a gift. Now, I'm going to actually uh, talk about Luke chapter 1, which I preached on this morning, but I'm going to talk about some things that, um, that I didn't address uh, in the sermon. And so let me just uh, read uh, a little bit of uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning with the 26th verse. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Uh, one of the great implications of the incarnation, God putting on the flesh and being born of a virgin, is this idea of vulnerability. Uh, I said in the sermon, uh, and I'm not going to keep saying that, okay? Just, if, if you hear me repeat myself, just get over it. Uh, but <laughs> Gabriel picks his words so carefully and he immediately draws the distinction that he is the son of God, the most high, but how is he born? How does he come into the world? As low as it gets. Right? We look at uh, Philippians chapter 2 and that uh, God uh, empties himself uh, of everything. He did not consider equality God was something to be grasped and, and comes into the world and dwells among us. Uh, being born uh, of a virgin and look, this is not, um, to Mary, this initially is not really news of great joy, right? Mary, when she's thinking about it rationally, she, she wondered in her heart how these things could be, and she asked Gabriel, look, I don't have a husband, I'm a virgin. How can this be? Uh, because uh, people back then had IQs that are the same as ours. No, we're not smart. They can do math. They can think, okay, she and Joseph were married on this day, and she had a baby on this day. Huh, right? And he, they grow up in a town, and everybody knows uh, what the deal is. And so he's born into circumstances uh, that are not desirable from a worldly perspective, right? Um, I'm not going to try to destroy the, the Christmas story uh, that we've all grown up with, but I could try if you want me to later on. Um, but uh, Jesus was born uh, in a manger, uh, that's for sure. But really, it used to be back in the day that you would have a part of your house as a stable and then there would be a dividing area and the, the animals would eat on that side of the area but the manger kind of was the dividing point between, between living space and where you'd keep your, your livestock and everything would be built uh, at an angle uh, so that everything would kind of flow down um, and it seems that... Uh, all, people also would have a place 
uh, where if you had an invited guest, uh, they would stay. You'd have a guest room. And the word that's translated as in uh, really is better translated as guest room. Uh, and so the poor innkeeper always gets the bad rap of he's a mean old guy and he just said, well, you can have the barn. When in reality what happened is they said, look, the guest room is taken because everybody's coming to town for the census and all we really have is where the animals are, um, but that's as good as it gets. And I don't think that that takes away from the, from the story at all, uh, but still he was born in a feeding trough, right? He was, he was born uh, where livestock dwell and... Um, an illegitimate child uh, born to an unwed uh, teen mother. And uh, as she grows, um, you know, I, I don't know if they, what's that empire waist? What is the wedding dress? Yeah, I don't know if they had those back then where she could cover it up. But um, every, everybody knew. Everybody knew. And could you be any more counterintuitive? Right? I mean, why doesn't God just kind of burst on the scene at 30, Right? Trumpet, fanfare, here I am. It's because he has to come as a child because he has to be born in vulnerability because the only way for, for him to save is to subject himself to harm and ultimately to death. Now here's the funny thing, is when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, because of that vulnerability that he shows us, we become vulnerable too. And that's scary. If you've been in any relationship, if you've loved anybody, you've become vulnerable and you've opened yourself up to being hurt, haven't you? And because you're in a human relationship, you're going to get hurt. C.S. Lewis said long, long ago, if you don't want to get hurt, just don't love anybody. Just don't love anybody. And if you really love someone the more you love them, the more likely you are to get hurt by them. Right? This is especially true of uh, if you have someone in your life who struggles with addiction right? and you find yourself getting really angry over the, where they are in, in their lives and, um, and they often can't understand why you're so angry, uh, you're angry because you love much. Your anger is proportional to your love for that person. Right, the opposite of love is not anger, it's hate. And then hate can move to indifference. So if a married couple came into my office and they said we're having marital problems and she starts screaming at him and says, uh, you know, uh, I, I just, I'm just screaming at you, uh, I would think, okay, well, they're going to be all right. At least she's not indifferent. Right? Uh, there's, there's hope. It means that she actually cares. And, and if he's yelling at her, it, mean he, it means he actually cares. And in any relationship... When you have vulnerability, that's what's going to happen. And, of course, that's exactly uh, what happens uh, to God, except that we actually do end up hating him. You know, we actually are indifferent to him. And yet, uh, he loves us so much that he can't... So he's, his love for us is so great, it's as if God is against himself. God's love for us is so great, it's almost as if, as if God is against himself. Uh, because he didn't have to come into our world, and yet he chose to in the most unlikely and counterintuitive uh, of ways to be born in his major. And um, when uh, we were hating him more than we ever have, he loved us more than he ever has, dying on a cross. Uh, Father, forgive them, uh, for they know not what they do. And 
you know, rationally, we're like the, the thief on the cross. You know, call down your angels. You know, smite them. Crush them. You know, get rid of them. Uh, save us from, from this. Uh, and uh, yet that's not what he does. He continues to pour himself out for us. But on the other hand, um, his great love for us, because it's perfect, when we become vulnerable to God, we're not opening ourselves up to be hurt. Right? Because in being vulnerable to God, you are more secure and more protected than you ever have been in your own strength when you try to erect barriers in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's in that vulnerability that because God has come to us and made himself vulnerable and loved us when we didn't love him at all, and in that relationship with him, we become vulnerable. Uh, in that, there is security and there is a foundation, and that's what's transformative. Because when you take on that identity, which is rooted in another individual who is infallible, right? If, if you have your identity and rooted in someone or something that, um, that is fallible, you are definitely going to get hurt, uh, and, and it will be taken away from you. Um, you know, we all, uh, you know, someone once said, the first thing that you think of in the morning when you wake up gives you a pretty good idea of what you worship. Right? And, and it's that thing uh, that we normally put our stake and, and our security in, and uh, if we stake our lives in that and we will ultimately come, become vulnerable to it, uh, we're going to get burned. That's the nature of idolatry. Uh, in Beaufort, uh, Jeff Miller, the rector there, is from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, um, and uh, his wife is from Greensboro, uh, but uh, Jeff was running late, and uh, Frank was the rector at the time, and Fitz Allison was in town preaching, and I, I've heard this story, I wasn't there, and um, Jeff walked in kind of mid-conversation, and uh, Fitz kept saying, you know, the problem in America and with the church today and his Columbia wonderful uh, accent uh, is idolatry. The problem in America is idolatry. And everybody's nodding their head yes, and Jan Johnstown Jeff Miller is looking and saying, what is going on here? I, I, what is he saying? I, I don't understand. And after, then everybody went off to dinner, and Jeff grabbed his wife, Kristen, and says, Kristen, what does Fitz have against the Dollar Tree over by the Walmart store? <laughs> and, she, and she said, Jeff, uh, he said, idolatry is the problem. Well, the nature, and the psalmist, the psalmist says this, is that those who worship idols become like them. Those who worship idols become like them. Uh, they have no eyes and they have no ears. They have, they have eyes, yet they cannot see. They have ears, yet they cannot hear. And you will become more and more like the thing uh, that you worship. Right. Your life will be conformed to it. And um, that's also true, uh, but in a more positive way, of those who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right. Uh, you do begin uh, to be conformed uh, into his image, and it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and when, that ha when, when you establish, when God establishes that relationship, uh, between the two of you and you have that identity, that's an identity that is unassailable. And all of a sudden, all the arrows and darts of the enemy and of the world can come against you and they don't make, a di they don't make the difference that they once did. 
right? So when you become vulnerable in your relationship with Jesus Christ and all these things come along and, uh, you know, that normally would totally rock your world, uh, it's not that the sting has been taken away, uh, but because your life is rooted in something secure and infallible, it doesn't shake your existence. And so when Christmas time comes around, uh, you can give a gift to somebody else uh, and it really doesn't matter whether they like it or not. Uh, you can receive a gift and say thank you and not feel the need to have anything in return. Uh, and that's okay because you're no longer under the power of the, you're no longer under the law, but you now live under a dispensation of grace which gives you freedom. Freedom to be in that relationship with God. Now, it still does bother us, but what we do is we, uh, you know, I'm not going to give you, well, it shouldn't bother you. I'm not here to give you that advice. It shouldn't bother you. Um, So what I do is that when I get in those situations, uh, I hold fast to the cross. I have to remind myself of what Jesus has done for me. It's not, well, next year maybe I need to get something better. Or next year I need to make sure I get them something. Um, But in fact, because of what Jesus has done for me, it's okay. It's all been done. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And, and that gives you an assurance uh, that is unassailable. Now, um, I'm going to show a video clip. I hope this works. If it doesn't, um, I'm just going to have to sing for you because this is kind of crucial. Um, it's uh, that time of year when um, all the great Rankin Bass, car, you know, Claymate stop action animation come in. And uh, for years, I have uh, been actually trying to track down Jules Bass. Um, so if you have any connections, uh, let me know, because I want to know the story uh, behind uh, this song. Is it there? Is it? Okay, I don't know what I just did, but... Um, but I've been trying to tack it on Jules Bass because I really want to know uh, what exactly he was thinking uh, when he wrote this song. And just, thank you. Did that just happen? <laughs> um, uh, but um, now let me give you some background. If Santa Claus is coming to town, Chris Kringle is having a real fight with uh, uh, Burger Master Meister Burger, and, um, who has outlawed toys in the town. And, um, uh, and so Chris Kringle is going back and forth between his workshop, and he's got this sort of underground railroad of toys going into the city, and he has to cut through the Winter Warlock's domain. And uh, needless to say, the Winter Warlock is not a fan, and uh, so uh, we're going to encounter Chris Kringle's interaction uh, between the Winter Warlock. And at, when they begin to break in the song, stop listening to Chris Kringle, Right? to stop listening to him and just listen to the Winter Warlock. You are trespassing on the lands of the Winter Warlock. Hey! Hey, let go! Let go! Chris Kingle, you've disturbed me for the very last time. No! 
<laughs> Look, uh, before you do me in, would you tell your tree friends to let me loose for a second? You see, I, I have something for you. What is this? A trick? Oh, no, sir, Mr. Warlock. Or may I call you Winter? Mr. Warlock, if you please. Oh, well, I managed to save one little toy. And I'd like you to have it. You... You wish to give me a present? A, a toy? Yes, sir. But nobody ever gives mean old warlock a toy. I'd like to start a new custom. If you just call off... Well, well, oh, yeah, that... <laughs> oh, yes, of course. But you mustn't mind the tree monsters. Their bark is worse than their bite. <laughs> their bark is worse than their bite. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, Willie Willow, Peter Pine, release the Kringle. <laughs> and no tricks now. Oh, oh, no, no, sir, Mr. Wallach. A choo-choo. I've always wanted one. <laughs> What's that? My icy heart, it's melting. Well, look, Mr. Warlock. Please, please, call me Winter. Winter? Oh, yes, yes. Suddenly, my whole outlook has changed from bad to good. Great. Ah, but will it last? I really am a mean and despicable creature at heart, you know. It's so difficult to... Really change. Difficult? <laughs> why, why, look here. Changing from bad to goods as easy as taking your first step. Put one foot in front of the other. And soon you'll be walking across the floor. Put one foot in front of the other. And soon you'll be walking out the door. You never will get where you're going if you never get up on your feet. Come on, there's a good tailwind blowing. A fast walking man is hard to beat. Put one foot in front of the other. If your time of life is at hand Well, don't be the rule, be the exception A good way to start is to stand Put one foot in front of the other And soon you'll be walking across the floor Put one foot in front of the other and soon you'll be walking out the door. If I want to change the reflection, I see in the mirror each morn. Oh, you do? You mean that it's just my election? Just to You vote for a chance to be reborn? You put one foot.
Thank you for bearing with that. Um, really does have a point. Um, uh, I, a, a lot is going on uh, in this um, uh, in this little small segment, and um, uh, what we find is that uh, Chris Kringle. Uh, is going to die, right? The warlock is going to kill Chris Kringle and, and do away. And I don't know what the deal is with the penguin. Um, I think he's a transitional deacon in the diocese of the Central Gulf Coast now. Um, but I don't know what's going on. But he's going to kill Chris Kringle. And Kringle's response is to what? Give the warlock a, a gift that he doesn't deserve. Uh, and what is the warlock worried about? Is this a trick? Is this some kind of trick? And you know, when people hear the gospel, they often think this is a trick. This can't possibly be true. This is too simple. It's too easy. And are, are you saying that, that I, don't, I don't do anything? I, I simply receive? You know, this gift that's being, it, it has to be a trick. And uh, the winter warlock receives uh, the gift. Uh, and uh, what does this unconditional love do? It melts his heart. It, it changes him uh, in, in every way. But then he asks the question that, that we all ask, will it last? Will uh, this gospel transformation last? Now, there are lots of ways to look at the song. Uh, one is that, well, there you go. Chris Kringle is a semi-Pelagian heretic. And, um, and let's look at it from that angle. Oftentimes in the church, uh, there's a lot of talk about grace and the gospel uh, on the front end. And you hear it from the pulpit. Jesus Christ has died for you, uh, and you should accept him as your Lord and Savior. And then after you do that, they say, okay, now let's talk about what you need to do. Right? You need to put one foot in front of the other, and it's time for you to pick up where Jesus has left off. Now, that is not the gospel. Right? And that is a roadmap for disaster when it comes to transformation because it's only going to frustrate you even more. Right? Uh, but on the other hand, if sanctification um, is as easy as putting one foot in front of the other, it's what? It just happens. It, it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit and fruit of the Spirit, it always says that the Holy Spirit produces the fruit and we what? Bear it. Right? The Holy Spirit produces the fruit and we bear it. We don't produce it. Uh, the left hand really doesn't know, uh, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And we've encountered this in our lives and you know that it's the work of the Spirit when you can't take credit for it. Uh, there was a lady who... Uh, credited me for having her move to Beaufort. And I thought, oh gosh, that's not good. Uh, but she said she came out of church one Sunday and said, and said, well, I'm visiting. And all I said was, well, you know what? This is really uh, the right place for you. You should be worshiping here at St. Helena's. Now, I didn't know she lived in Martha's Vineyard. Um, <laughs> I thought she, she lived down the road. Um, well, I can't in a million years imagine really saying that to anybody, being that forthright. Um, 
But that's evidence of what? That I had, no, I had nothing to do with that because I can't take credit for it. And I told her later on, I said, Diane, I'm pretty sure I never said that to you. And I said, it must have been someone else. And she said, no, uh, it was you. And at that point, all you can say is, well, praise the Lord. Um, but if it is as easy as, as putting uh, one step in front of the other, uh, it is something that happens when the Holy Spirit is a part of your life. And this is hard because when you first receive the gospel message, uh, you are elated with this amazing feeling. And you, you tend to go on things like spiritual retreats and things like that. And you begin to notice uh, that the silver bullets uh, don't have the effect. Remember the retreat that really made you feel sky high? Uh, it's kind of hard to find those things anymore. Uh, there's not that much that really makes you feel that feeling of elation uh, early on uh, in, in your walks. And when I was first coming out, a guy told me, he said, he gave me this book. And, uh, and it was the whole idea of the book is if you did, uh, if you do anything every day for three weeks in a row, it will become a habit. If you do ev anything any, every single day for three weeks, it will become a habit. And I found that to be, to be true of only bad habits. Um, and, um, and I just thought, well, there must be something wrong with me. So what I need to do is I need to, you know, I need to reread the book. I need to, uh, I need to you know, go on this retreat. Uh, but as time went on, you know, I started thinking, you know, I, I just don't feel that feeling that I, I once did. Uh, but what's happening is not... Um, the departure of the spirit, uh, but it's the normalization of a relationship, right? Uh, you know, God's grace is always amazing, and it doesn't matter how you feel about it. Uh, when uh, Luther was translating the New Testament into German, Melanchthon, who of course is a great reformer, uh, was writing him letters and saying, you know, I often don't feel uh, like God loves me. You know, I often am sent into despair. And for a while, Luther ignored all of these letters until finally he'd had enough and he had work to do. So he wrote back Melanchthon, and of course, it's a very famous quote from Luther. Uh, Melanchthon, go and sin boldly. All right, we all know that part. Uh, but the second part is, go and sin boldly, for the cross is outside of you. That is, God's love for you is not contingent on how you feel. We don't navel gaze and we wonder whether or not God loves us or we wonder does his, his death really have power to save and change us. What we do is we look outside at the objective truth of the cross. Here is reality. Here is fact that Jesus died for you, whether you feel it or not. Because there are some days where I don't feel it Right? There are some days when I walk into worship and I'm just not feeling it. Right? Uh, you know, I always thought it was funny at St. Helena's, we all line up in the back. There's not a lot of places to go. And, um, you know, mom and dad have dragged their children into church and they're all disheveled and, you know, one might not have shoes on and, you know, hair all and, and I remember a mother saying, all right, everybody get it together. Let's kneel in the pew and pray because we're in church. Right? So it's time to take the outside world toss it aside, and begin to focus on church. But we open our communion service with Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open, right? All, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. 
God doesn't want us to say, okay, it's time to compartmentalize my life. That's what he wants us to bring to worship because we can't compartmentalize our lives. And so we bring our whole selves to worship and allow him to do that work. That's why the liturgy is arranged the way that it is. There's a method to our madness. Right? Uh, so when that truth uh, sinks deep in our hearts, even when we don't feel it, it's still true. And that truth is the only thing that has the power uh, to change our lives. Although there are those in the church who do take the approach of, like uh, we, if we stereotype Chris Kringle, and, and say, well, the answer is to try harder. The answer is to find uh, another silver bullet that will do the trick uh, when, in fact, uh, the same grace that saved you in the first place is the same grace that is going to sustain you and transform you. Now, whenever I preach or teach, I always do it with that question in mind. Will it last? Because this is the question that the world is asking, right? My generation is a generation that says, look, we really, we believe in God. Uh, we're spiritual, but not religious, whatever that means. And, um, uh, but we're really turned off by, by organized religion. And um, recently on December the 10th, uh, Eric Weiner in the New York Times uh, wrote this about my generation. Apparently, a growing number of Americans are running from organized religion, but by no means running from God. On average, 93% of those surveyed said that they believe in God or a higher power. This holds true for most nuns. And by the nuns, he's talking about you know, the, the 20s and 30s who, who say, look, I'm religious, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I just kind of do my own thing. I watch Oprah. Uh, just 7%... But just of the nuns, just 7% of whom describe themselves as atheists. Only 7% of people in their 20s and 30s describe themselves as atheists, according to a survey by Trinity College Hartford. Nuns, he says, are the undecided of the religious world. We drift spiritually and dabble in everything from Sufism to Kabbalah to, yes, Catholicism and Judaism. Nuns don't get hung up on whether a religion is true or not, but instead, instead subscribe to William James' maxim that, quote, truth is what works. If a certain spiritual practice makes us better people, more loving, less angry, then it is necessarily good and by extension true. This is the single greatest misconception that I encounter by folks who object to Christianity. Jesus' followers. They think, as Eric Weiner has articulated, that Christianity is primarily about moral improvement. It's not. Every other religion, philosophy, and worldview is about that. But Christianity is not. Christianity sets itself apart in one word. Grace. God made himself vulnerable Every other religion, uh, and if you, if you talk to someone who's a Muslim, they are offended by the idea that you can know God personally, right? Which is part of the notion of grace. Um, every other religion 
worldview either has God, and I'm not even going to get into those worldviews that are atheistic, because only 7%, I mean, that's still a significant number, but most of the people that you encounter are not going to be atheists, right? So 93% of the time, you're going to encounter someone who sees Christianity as primarily about moral improvement, and two, that God really isn't personal. He's kind of far off, and it's my job uh, to try to find him. And if it makes me a better person, then it must be true. But the thing about Christianity is not true because it works. It works because it's true. It works because it's true because of grace. Something outside of us, the alien gospel, crashes into the Roswell, New Mexico of our hearts. It's alien. It's foreign. It's outside of us. God doesn't come to us from a manger. God doesn't come and dwell amongst us. He stays far away. What Christianity about is about is grace. And so what happens in the life of the believer is that grace takes hold. This is why, and they're right to say this, I know a lot of people who aren't Christians who are a whole lot nicer and better than I am. I just do. Uh, but, but am I a changed person? Absolutely. But what I am is more in touch with who I am as a sinful individual than I ever was before. And I know that the only way that I am going to be made different is to put my trust into, some, in, in, into Jesus Christ which is an incredibly vulnerable thing to do, but it is in that vulnerability that I actually find myself changing. That I find myself changing. And do I need moral improvement? Oh, brother, don't you know it. Right? Lauren's here in the front row. She's going to do an eight-part series on it. And <laughs> she, can, she can tell you uh, that uh, I know what Paul is saying when he says, uh, you know, I am the chief uh, of sinners. But it is in that reliance on God's grace in that alone uh, that is going to make all of the difference this Christmas season and always. Let me just close with a quote from Dorothy Sayers who wrote this. The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall into a condition of being limited, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us, and thought it all well worth his while. Uh, how can we receive and how can we give uh, when we're under the law? Uh, we can't. Christmas is this writ large. Um, but that we would take hold of the objective truth of the gospel and celebrate its dawning of redeeming grace uh, this Christmas, Christmas season uh, and year-round. Questions, comments, concerns? Um, it's the one uh, she... Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question. Just kidding. Uh, uh, what book did that come from, Dorothy Sayers? It was an essay, and I think it's called The Greatest Drama Ever Told. And she does a little bit kind of on the incarnation, and she does a little, you could read it in 20 minutes, um, and it can be found online.
Thanks, Andrew. That ought to usher us right on into Christmas Eve. I, you know, I, what powerful stuff. I've, I've often said, and I'll say it till the day I die, as long as I can preach. I don't preach or teach Christian faith because it's helpful, but teach it and preach it because it's the truth. Uh, and it's the most amazing truth in the world. So thank you for reminding that once again. Next, because uh, Christmas Eve is on Saturday, Sunday, Christmas Day, we will not have, it'll be kind of like Christ, all Christmas days here at the Advent. So we won't have a class. We'll have church at 10 o'clock as we usually do on Christmas Day. And then on New Year's Day, which is the following Sunday, instead of having a class, we're going to have a reception in Clement Commons. Hope you can make it for that. So the next, for the next dean's class, I'll be here and I'll be uh, be doing a class, uh, the Bible and the New Yorker cartoons. I'm going to do one more of those uh, by special request. Uh, and uh, following that, we'll have uh, uh, something else, have a, a special presentation here. So uh, thank you. God bless you all. And Merry Christmas. And Happy New Year, and let's go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit.